Good morning, everybody. And if you're just joining us, welcome to Carolina Family Church in the digital realm. And apparently there's a lot of conversation this morning about the fact Jeremy is wearing no shoes. Yeah. I don't know. Is it good conversation? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just acknowledgement. Okay, just acknowledging that it's... He doesn't have shoes. Ah, yeah. So, Jeremy, what size shoe do you wear? 12. 12. So if you have an extra... No, if you have an extra pair of size 12 shoes and you want to help Jeremy out, just send them to him. Um, I'm sure you can find his address on the on 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 the web somewhere. So uh, anyway, glad you're here today. And um, you know, I th- I know things are, are crazy right now. Obviously, with this you know the pandemic that we're in and the what it means for us all. And um, so I know we're all trying to figure it out and having a lot of conversation recently with people about their jobs and what that means and the kind of impact that that has. I mean, even in this room where we are today, this, this space, um, about half of the people in the room here have had their jobs significantly impacted by all of this. Either they've been laid off for a period of time or not working or having to find new work or different work. And I know that's the case for a lot of you too. And with all of that going on, one of the biggest things we're talking about is the financial impact of all of this, um, not only on a large scale, but on the individual scale for each one of us. Uh, we've got people that are losing jobs. We have businesses that are struggling. Uh, we have business. I know I've driven by several businesses now that I'm aware of that have closed permanently because of this, and um, particularly restaurants and places where people gather and meet. So businesses are strugg- struggling. We're trying to make decisions right now, and there's a lot of uncertainty in those decisions when it comes to the area of finance. And so for a lot of people right now, money is at the front of the conversation. It's at the, the, the forefront of our thoughts and our minds. And it's very important as we're going through this, as we've been talking throughout this entire series, that we are understanding correctly how to think about this stuff as we face it. That we're learning to think about things as Christians and not as anything else. And so that even includes the area of our resources or our finance or our money. And when it comes to money, there's a phrase that gets circulated around and attributed to Christians And we're going to look at it today, as we've done throughout this entire series, these things Christians say or things people think Christians say, and answering, are they true or not? And our phrase for today is this. Maybe you've heard this. Money is the root of all evil. Money is the root of all evil. Is that true? Is it false? Is it true-ish? Is it biblical? Is it not? Now. Those of you, hopefully, here's, here's the deal. I hope on this one, it's a little bit of a soft toss. Okay? All right? We're not playing major leagues here. We're playing church league softball with this one. All right? Slow pitch, high, slow lob in to take a swing at. Is that phrase true? No, it's not true. Does the Bible say that? No, the Bible doesn't say it. But some people may think that it does if they misunderstand a very important verse from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And so let's take a look at that verse and what it actually says. Verse, Just part of it, really. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now that's a very different phrase than saying money is the root of all evil. Because if we thought that money was the root of all evil, we would blame money for our problems. And yes, we see a lot of problems with money, but money itself 
is not the problem. You can see right on the face of this verse, the love of money. And that's a very different thing than money itself. Money doesn't have intent. It is amoral. It is not good or bad. It's just a thing. In fact, money is a concept we have created as human beings. We take a dollar bill and say it's worth this much versus a peso or versus the yen or versus whatever else. And it's all based on a gold standard. But still, we look at gold and say, we think gold is worth this much. And it's just a concept we've created in our heads. Money is not a problem, but the love of money is a very real problem. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That, and that word, a root, you look at the word that was used uh, by Paul when he wrote this to a young pastor named Timothy. When he wrote this, the word he used in Greek means to sprout out of or to spring forth from, the root, the, the, the genesis or the epicenter. It is the love of money is where a lot of evil sprouts from. And that's a very real thing that we need to be careful of, even in a time right now where we're not sure whether we're going to have it or not and what kinds of decisions we're going to make about it, how we're going to spend it or save it or invest it or what we're going to do with it or how or what our income is going to look like. We need to understand that a lot of evil can sprout out of the love of money. Now, when we say the love of money, I think it's easy, and we say the evil that comes from this, it's easy to think about like the CEO sitting up in the penthouse or the, the, the upper floor of the skyscraper in their big you know, leather wingback chair with a view of the city behind them and they're smoking a cigar and laughing gutturally with how much... I don't know how it sounds. You know? <laughs> I have so much money. Yeah, that's, that's what it sounds like. It's a little bit like an evil Santa, yeah. So we, I think it's easy to think about that, uh, that picture when we say evil coming out of the love of this idea of greed or corporate greed or whatever it may be. And, and we think of you know Ebenezer Scrooge or somebody like that. And listen, I mean, it could be it could be that for sure, and that's it at a huge kind of macro level that we would all agree is wrong. But it, the love of money being the root of all sorts of evil can also happen in a much smaller or seemingly less significant way. It can come out as an argument between two spouses over how you're spending money because you want it to be spent one way and your spouse wants it to be spent another way and you don't agree on how to spend the money and usually, usually one, or I should say always, one or both are wanting to spend it in a frankly more selfish way. And so I want it to benefit me. And so um, it's interesting. My, my wife, Jess, just said, why is he looking at me? <laughs> but we don't argue about money much. Um, but there was actually a study done in, by Utah State University in 2009 that said that the, um, the frequency of money fights is the number one indicator of divorce by far. So the more you fight about money, the more likely you are to get divorced. But that's because it represents a fundamental difference in values and priorities and disciplines. And all of that springs out of, ultimately, out of sin. And so it could be that. It could be this 
all this, this evil, which we, we say evil and we think about drastic things, but it doesn't have to be drastic things. It could be saying no to someone or something when we should say yes simply because we don't have the money to do it because we spent it on ourselves. Because we, because we love money or because we are afraid of letting it go. The love of money is the root of all sorts, all kinds of evil. It could be getting sucked into a a get-rich-quick scheme and pouring all of your life savings into this thing that you're putting your trust in because someone said that you could double your money or you would get your money, you know, you'd get this huge return. And so we, we don't even think rationally or logically anymore about what we're doing because the love of money or the desire of money is pulling us into it. And so it causes all kinds of wreckage in our life. Now that's what, it's one of the things that, that Paul is getting at when he writes to Timothy. He doesn't want Timothy, as a, as a pastor, to fall into the trap of desiring or pursuing or loving money. And he warns him in the section before what we're about to read, just so we kind of get the lead in, he warns him that there are spiritual people out there who have that as their goal. They think that that godliness is a means of financial gain. They think that they can be in ministry, be a pastor, be a teacher, and that that is going to gain them wealth. And so ultimately, that's their desire. That's what they want, not what is true and what is pure. And so he's warning Timothy against this personally, but also wants him to warn the church against it as well. And so let's we're going to zoom out as we've been doing in this series. We've got 1 Timothy 6.10a that we read before. Let's broaden out and start in verse 6 of this chapter. See exactly what Paul is getting at. All right, uh, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. Not financial wealth, that's not great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. I think this is really interesting, and I want you to, in your mind, kind of put a pin in this idea. He makes it clear to Timothy that Timothy needs to be thinking not only about what he, not about what he has right now, but about what happens after he goes out of this world. Mm -hmm. You brought nothing in. You're not taking anything out. Your mind needs to be on what's past that, not what, on what is right now. And so he says in verse eight, and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. That's enough for now. Verse 9, but, and this is the warning, those who desire to be rich, when that's, you see this desire, it's a, it's a passion, it's a driving force, it's a motivation. Those who desire to be rich, when that's your goal, fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in in destruction and perdition. This is very vivid language that he's using, that it's a snare and that you get pulled into foolish things, harmful lusts that drown you. And that that terminology to me is so telling of even the the mental picture that Paul is trying to uh, paint for Timothy. 
He wants Timothy to see that when you pursue or desire riches or money or wealth, when that's your motivation or your goal, that you will just find yourself drowning, constantly swimming and trying to tread water and trying to get back up above this line that you think exists out there, where if I could just get above this line, then I'm going to be able to breathe and I'll be safe and I'll be happy and I'll be secure. And it's, it's false hope. I said, it's not there. You drown in destruction and perdition. For, now this is where he gets to what we read earlier. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For which, now this is for which, for the love of money. For which, some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. See, these are self-inflicted wounds because we got distracted from what is actually important and what is actually true. And we went off pursuing and desiring money. Now, I'm applying this. I'm saying we. I'm applying this to, to me and to you. He's talking about specifically here about teachers who have been doing this within the church. Let me just, here's the thing. Don't we, don't we already know this? In our heads, at least, this is one of those things that finds a hard time getting from our head to our heart. But in our head, don't we know that pursuing money and greed just isn't going to get us anywhere? Don't we know that it causes us to end up feeling trapped in a particular course or life? Don't we know, know that even the richest people in the world will tell us that it's not satisfying to have even as much money as they have? Don't we know that along with great influence or notoriety or anything also come lots and lots of problems and stresses? I mean, how many, how many rich people do we have to see flame out? How many, how many celebrities do we have to see crash to their, to, their, to their faces in order to realize that the promise that we create in our own heart, that money is going to fulfill us and make us feel better and give us safety and security, that, 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 that pursuing money or pursuing wealth is going to give us what we need or what we want? How many people do we have to see fall until we finally believe it or agree with it? that it's a road to nowhere and that we don't end up feeling the things and experiencing the things that we want. Now, I'm going to say that we say the love of money and, and the love of money, that word, do I love money? I think we have to ask ourselves that question. Do I love money? Let me put another word in there that I think is, is a synonym in this case and would really get us maybe further down the road with this idea and self-evaluating and looking in our own life. Instead of love, maybe the word trust. Where is my trust? Do I trust money? Is that where my trust is? That if I'm going to be safe and secure and happy and be able to do all the things, where is my trust? Is my trust in money? Or is it somewhere else? Where's my, it's my treasure. It's what I value. It's what I desire. It's where my hope is placed. It's what gives me value. It's what I value. It's what I depend on. Is that money? And, and it's not a matter of how much we have or how little we have. It isn't. That's, that's not the concern here. The concern is what I love, what I desire, and what I trust. And we experience a lot of self-inflicted pain because money is not trustworthy, though we think it is. And it's an, 
it creates this unending desire in us, an insatiable appetite for more. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from John D. Rockefeller, you might know him as one of the most wealthy people who's ever lived on the face of the planet. He's on the list of the top 10, I believe, who's ever lived. Um, he said, how much money does it take to make a man happy? Just one more dollar. This is, I mean, I, this, is, this is my synonymous quote. This is the quote, this is my quote to, to say the same idea. Not one of the top 10. Yeah, not, not one of the top 10 wealthiest people who's ever lived. I'm, I'm lower on that totem pole. Although I will bet, I will bet you and me, if they made a list, we would be way near the top of that list historically. All right, so the Americans are quite wealthy in general. Um, no, here's my quote. Anyway, our bank account is like a bag of Doritos. It always needs just one more. <laughs> okay? Right. One more chip. It always needs just one more chip. I didn't even get my own quote right. All right, it's not that good a quote. Rockefeller's quote is probably better. But the point is, the point is, if our desire is money and that's what we want to have, guess what? You're never getting there. You're never getting there. You're never going to have all that you want. You're never going to have all that you need. And so if we think that that's the answer and if that's where we put our hope and if that's where we put our trust, it's not going to happen. And trusting in money will inevitably lead to evil in our life. And that's sin. It will lead to self-centeredness. It will lead to arguments. It will lead to pushing ourselves above other people in order to get it. It will create all kinds of problems in our life. And it will not answer the questions or satisfy the needs that we have. Our trust needs to be somewhere else. One of the verses in scripture that has been most impactful to me in my life, or it's two verses technically, is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. They're very important. In fact, that number 3, 5, 6 is very important to me. It's part of my email address and all of that. I, I still remember as a child, it, it, to my recollection, it's the verse that I learned the day that I accepted Christ. I was very young. But in Sunday school that day, we actually made this visual thing. We broke the verse down into four parts, and I drew a stick figure drawing for each part of this verse. And then uh, my mom fr like framed it, and it's at my parents' house somewhere. Um, and it's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And what I want to do is what I didn't understand at the age of five was that Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 was written by King Solomon. Well, I maybe understood that. But written by King Solomon, who was one of the wealthiest people who ever lived. He makes John Rockefeller look like a fool as far as wealth goes. If you, and makes me look like even less than that, yeah. But uh, Solomon, King Solomon, I think in the rankings that I saw, you have to take what they had to then and then put it in today's dollars. But if you do those comparisons, I think he's the fourth richest person that's ever been on the face of the planet. His net worth today would be approximately $2 trillion. So if, if you wanted it, King Solomon had it. There was, there was absolutely nothing that he wanted that he couldn't buy, he couldn't have. And yet Proverbs 3, the entire chapter, is him trying to explain to his son. That's really what Proverbs is designed to do. It's he's trying to pass wisdom down. And while much of 
Proverbs is just like one-liners from Solomon that are sort of disconnected to each other. The first few chapters are not. The first few chapters have very clear intent in larger sections, and Proverbs 3 is that. And he's trying to, com- con- to tell his son that the most valuable thing you can have is not money, even though he has so much of it. And so what I want to do is I want to read you Proverbs 3, all of it. Just listen to it and listen to what one of the guys who had the most money you could even imagine had and what he has to say about wealth and its value. So this is Proverbs 3. If you're turning in your Bibles about halfway through, I have a marker, so I'm already there. Okay. (laughs) All right. Proverbs 3. Just listen to it. Okay. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. This is 5 and 6. These are the verses for me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, And all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, and her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down the dew. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble when the wicked, when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it's due, when it's in in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it to you, when you have it with you. Do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause, if he's done you no harm. Do not envy the oppressor, or choose none of, and choose none of his ways. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. 
The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, and he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. He's saying, listen, money, all of this stuff, yes, he had it. But he's saying more valuable than that is the wisdom and honor of the Lord. And to know that you're doing the good that he's asking you to do, that you're supporting the work that he's asking you to support. Don't withhold it when you, when you have it. Don't think that, that just because you have, because you've acquired, that that makes you something. But wisdom and discretion and justice and truth, these are things worth pursuing. And he makes it clear that you can use money in order to do that. But there's a difference between pursuing money for money's sake and pursuing truth and justice and wisdom and using money to do it. Now, you might be tempted to say, like I might be tempted to say, well, Solomon, <laughs> that's easy for you to say. <laughs> it's easy to say when you have everything you could ever want. Oh, I don't really need all of this. But listen, how many times do we have to look across the fence and see someone who's over there on the other side saying, hey, it's not greener over here before we actually believe them and stop trying to jump the fence. We have to believe them. It's not better. And what you will find if you're chasing wealth is that you're chasing your own tail. You're just spinning in circles, trying to catch something you're never going to catch. Money cannot do for us what it seems to promise it can do for us. And it's not a matter of the money itself. It's a matter of our heart and what we're after. Our hope should rest elsewhere. All right, let's keep going with 1 Timothy, where we started, this verse that we started with in this section. Let's keep reading now in verse 11. So now, all right, people have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's what he just said. Now, he says, but you... Oh, man of God, flee these things. Run away. <laughs> Run away. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. This sounds very similar to what Solomon said, doesn't it? Pursue this. Fight the good fight of the faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says, lay hold on eternal life. What does that mean? Think past this life. Right now, live now as you will after Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. Lay hold on how you're going to live eternally. And live that way now. And living eternally isn't about grasping for yourself whatever you can get. While the getting's good, you have to... Focus on righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight, 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 and lay hold on what is good. Because you've confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What, what is the good confession? Here's the good confession. Verse 13. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things 
And before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, Jesus tells us what the good confession is. What is it? What did Jesus say in front of Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate said, are you a king? And Jesus affirms it. Yet in front of Pontius Pilate, Jesus also says, my kingdom, yes, I'm a king, my kingdom is not of this world. And if we have confessed the good confession, the same one that Jesus did, that Jesus is king and that his kingdom is not of this world, then why are we trying to build treasure and kingdoms here? What's the point of that? What's the point of building up wealth for ourselves here when Paul already said, you brought nothing into this world and you're taking nothing out? You ever heard a a pastor say, I've never seen a U-Haul following a hearse? It's a terrible joke and you shouldn't make it, right? But But you can't take it with you. You can't. So why are we building kingdoms here? Why? Why are we building up? Why are we storing up for ourselves treasure here where moths destroy and where thieves break in and steal? This is what Jesus said. No, instead, build up for yourself treasure in heaven where moths don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. We have to be thinking beyond, forward, past. And the things that are true wealth are putting on the character and the person of Christ. Righteousness. Godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Jesus made the good confession. I am a king. Yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. And he says, verse 14, that you keep this commandment without spot. The commandment is to flee the love of money. That you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. What does that mean? He means we got to fight until he returns. We got to fight against this urge and this temptation to love money and pursue money because he's coming back. And it's, but until that time, we got to fight on our hands and we need to engage it, which we will manifest in his own time. And then he wants to really drive home this idea of Jesus being the king and us thinking about his kingdom. He who is the blessed and only potentate. That's not a word we often use, but you know what it means in context. All right, the potentate, the king of kings and the Lord of lords who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Paul's like, can I drive this home deep enough that Jesus is better and his kingdom is better and we have to stop looking to this kingdom here for hope and for trust and fulfillment and peace and we need to find it in our Savior. Jesus Christ, who gave his life on the cross to pay for our sin, who rose again, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And if we believe in him for salvation, then we then should live for him and his kingdom. And amassing wealth is not going to get us there. Where is my trust? Is it in him or is it in money? And now that doesn't mean it's wrong to have money, but it means it's wrong to trust in money. It's wrong to think that money is something worth pursuing with our life or making the purpose of our life. Yet, whatever money we have, however much or however little that may seem to be, 
it is something that we can use. We can use it toward our real goal, which is righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. It is a tool, much like other tools that exist in our life, that we can use to gain those things. I can use whatever amount of money I have in order to do that. Money, think of it this way. Money, yes, it's a construct of our own society and everything, not a necessity, but money in God's eyes is a test. He's watching how we use money to see if we can stay pure, to see if we can maintain our focus, to see if we can have the right thought and mentality about it, to see if we can use it in a way that's trustworthy toward our real goal, which is growing to become more like Christ. It's a test. I actually think one of the more fascinating parables that Jesus taught is found in Luke 16. It's the parable of the unjust steward because in the parable of the unjust steward, if you if you didn't, you know, research what was going on, you might think that Jesus was telling people to be dishonest because what happens in that parable is that there is a, a money manager. He works for a, you know, a boss, a wealthy person who's not good at his job. Okay. And he's going to get canned and he knows he's going to get canned. And so what he does is he goes to all the people who owe money to his boss and he quickly changes the terms of their contract and like halves what they owe or takes what they owe way down before he loses his power as steward. And then, and then when he does get canned by the boss, because he should, because the guy's unethical, when he gets canned by the boss, He then goes back to all of those other people and he says, hey, you remember that good thing that I did for you? How about help me out now that I'm out of a job? And so Jesus tells this story and then it looks like, if you're not careful, it looks like Jesus is saying this guy did a good thing. Obviously, he didn't do a good thing. The point that Jesus makes is that, listen, if the world is shrewd enough with money to be able to use it toward their end goal or use it to their own advantage, if, if they can handle money toward their own goals that well, why can you not use money toward your goal? Why can't you use this resource if we haven't been trustworthy in what Jesus calls uh, earthly riches or unrighteous riches? If we haven't used that well, when other people seem to be so shrewd with it, if we haven't used that toward our goal, why would God trust us with true riches? When he brings his kingdom, when Christ reigns on earth, why would he, if we have, if we can't even use this stuff, if we can't even use dollars and cents and quarters and, you know, whatever, if we can't use our bank cards or our debit cards, if we can't even use that, we can't even manage that well, why would he trust us with true riches? Money in many ways is a test. It's an, well, maybe that's not the right word. Maybe a better word is money is an opportunity to prove to God that we love him. Money is an opportunity for us to prove to God that we can be faithful. It's an opportunity to prove to God that we're not going to be drawn into the values of the world, but that we are going to maintain the values of the kingdom. And so we need to learn how to detach ourselves emotionally from money, not to trust it, but to recognize it for what it is, a concept, paper, it's a thing. But that it's something that we can use. 
to show that God, to God that we're faithful. This is how uh, uh, Paul lands the plane with Timothy here. He says, all this, you got to be thinking forward. You got to be thinking about the kingdom. Don't get drawn into the love of money. But now he goes to the, here's what you need to do. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, like it doesn't make you valuable because you have money, nor to trust in uncertain riches. Don't trust in it. But in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. We're supposed to be using money to serve God's purpose in our lives, to bring him honor and glory. And so I have to ask myself a question that I want to encourage you to ask yourself, and it might be a hard question to ask or to confront. Am I using money? Am I using my possessions? Am I using my wealth to honor and serve God? Or am I using my money to honor and serve myself? That is a very hard question question to face. But but facing it and answering it honestly opens us up to a really incredible opportunity. So if I may, let me just change that phrase, the love of money is the root of all evil. Or even, even, obviously, the phrase we know which is true, which is the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Let's just spin that into a more proactive phrase for us to consider. The use of money can be a root of all kinds of righteousness. That we can use what we have, however much or however little that may be, we can use it to pursue our real goal, which is bringing honor and glory to God, serving his purposes in our life. And that's going to play out a million different ways in all of our lives. And it just doesn't, it doesn't have to do just with what we give to a particular you know, church or organization or whatever. It's how we spend it. It's how we save it. It's what our goals are. It's how we're communicating with each other about it. It's the whole thing. And I want to say, just, just kind of out of the, say out of the gate. This is not out of the gate. We're like coming into home right now. All right. <laughs> but as we're coming into home. Uh, I just want to say that I believe that we are a part of a church that really gets this. You know, I don't, I don't ever, you know, even as I think about our church organization, I never feel like I have to get up here and ask our church to be more generous with our church. You are very generous with our church, and it's, and it's wonderful. And I see you be so generous beyond that, too. And so I want to take a moment to con- commend you as a church. We just finished the baby bottle campaign, and I know that even when I dropped it off, the eyes lit up. I know I haven't gotten a, a number back yet on what it was, but whatever it was, I know that when I was carrying that, it was a laundry basket full of baby bottles that were full of money. When I was carrying it in, the handles were about to break on the basket as I took it in. I could barely carry it, and I'm not saying I'm very strong, but the basket was about to break. So, and, and, and I felt like maybe I would too. And so 
Uh, just so thankful for your level of generosity and the way you love people. So thank you for caring for our church. But I want you to look toward the community right now and look at your own life and ask, ask the question, how does God want me to use what I have to help other people and to serve his kingdom and to fulfill his purpose and to build righteousness and, and grace and peace and all of those things in my life? And so this is a big challenge for us, particularly with things so uncertain as they are but it represents a great opportunity for us to flee from the love of money and to pursue righteousness and peace and grace and godliness, just as Paul told Timothy to do. And so I'm gonna do that. I'm making that commitment for me. I'm asking you to make that commitment for you as well. All right, let's pray together. God, we come to you and express our gratitude to you for having blessed us and not a monetary blessing, although there are many of us that we have homes and we have food and we have clothes, though Jeremy doesn't have shoes, we have things that we need. And um, so we thank you for that. We also recognize that those aren't the real things we need. What we really need is you. What we really need is your love. What we really need is your peace and your purpose. And to fulfill that is enough for us. And though it may not feel that way, we believe that is true. So help that truth to go from our head to our heart so that we would be consistent in our life. We would be consistent in our behavior. We'd be consistent in our decisions. We would be consistent in our hopes and where we trust because we want to trust you. You've made that possible through your son's death and resurrection, Jesus Christ. Pray that someone today would put their faith in him for the first time and believe that he died to save them and trust him for salvation. And now as we walk through life, having made that decision, between now and when you return, Jesus, we face a world that values and desires money and material things and wealth and success and all this. And it's hard. It's hard to, to not be pulled into that. So help us to maintain focus Help us to maintain our intent and our desire on you. Open our eyes to see where we've gotten off on this, where we've begun to trust in money and wealth, how it's determining our hope, how it's determining our peace, and show us where you want us to use what we have so that we can build the right things in our life, the things that will last, the things that will be in the kingdom that we can prove ourselves faithful to you, that you can trust us, even with something as, as simple as money. Show us the good that you've designed for us to do. Give us the ability and the confidence to step into it and to share your truth and glory as we do. It's in your name we pray, amen.